0: The Wiser Podcast. Conversations, public talks, and audio essays from the Witz Institute for Social and Economic Research. Hi, I'm Cezo Mboff-Walsh, and this week on The Wiser Podcast, we listen to a conversation on Chinese futures and what they look like from Africa. Keith Breckenridge leads the discussion with three scholars who have worked on different aspects of China-Africa interactions, Eugenio Gagliardoni, Ming Wei Huang, and Pulelani Gili.
1: My name is Keith Breckenridge. I'm a historian based in Wiser, and I'm very fortunate and delighted to have with me three people to discuss a really interesting problem. Um, first up is Eugenio Gagliardoni, uh, who teaches in the media studies here at WITS and writes a great deal about uh, media and technology and politics. Uh, Mingwei Huang is the second of our conversationalists who teaches at Dartmouth College and produces really fantastic ethnography about uh, Chinese merchants in Johannesburg. And Bulilani Gili, who's at Harvard, who's working in, in mainly, it seems, in the law faculty and studying law. So we are here to consider the problem or the question, I suppose, of China's relationship or the current Chinese government's relationship with the projection of African futures, as in how people on the African continent imagine the future uh, that is being mapped out by the policies of the Chinese Communist Party, and I suppose the general question of of the Chinese economy Uh, And I wanted each to speak very briefly and in general to that question. The issue is partly what COVID and the Chinese state's response to COVID teaches us about what that future might look
2: like. I believe one lesson that uh, we can learn, uh, and it's not just the... Relative to Africa, is uh, is how the the, the the Chinese response and it's not just the government response, but a collective response to COVID, uh, based on uh, lockdowns and on uh, apps and surveillance, the surveillance that was accepted by 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 the citizen, has been seen for a while as. a uh, is uh, something that could be transferred and scaled up uh, all over the world. Uh, here in South Africa, there were attempts, and uh, uh, as I have to admit, I was also part of, of some of them, uh, to, to replicate the app, and so allow people to you know, be screened and, uh, and uh, not uh, pose a danger to others. Uh, Massive investment was probably in, in, in the UK when billion of pounds were invested in that, and it was just an enormous failure. And so uh, how silly it is, or like how didn't we see it uh, uh, before, how some really expected that the complexity, the socio-technical connections that are unique to China could be Uprooted via an app plus something else, and start producing effects elsewhere. So, so this should be a kind of like a tale to 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 learn to sort of uh, be a bit less disingenuous and and uh, and critical when when we think at China in Africa, China. In connection with, with other processes, and, and and lose the specificity of uh, of where we are.
1: Yeah, it's great, especially given that South Africa's current uh, struggles delivering the vaccine and the fantasy that we need a kind of. You know, South Korean-like states. Mingwei, what's your view on this?
3: I, I was in Johannesburg when the at the beginning of the, the pandemic. A, a lot of eyes globally have been watching the PRC and the ways that it can mobilize, leverage surveillance, and I think it has created some some panics and some. It's um, it's it, it's been a way to see what the what the PRC state can do, and um, I would say being in Johannesburg. There was kind of the beginnings of kind of uh, xenophobia. There was also, um, it was quite interesting to see, uh, you know, Chinese migrants returning from their, you know, lunar New Year trips um, to China, uh, potentially getting stuck or kind of stuck in transit, derailed, which is um, perhaps the reality of being, you know, living a transnational life. Um, and also, it, you know, being quite early in implementing a lot of the kind of um, quarantine protocols uh, that were happening in China when they came back to South Africa. Bonavani, what's your view?
0: Yeah, sure. You know, I guess my comments are going to attempt to tie both of the recent remarks. In fact, you know, I'm working on a uh, on an article on the states. Of uh, privacy law during the time of COVID, and really attempting to think through how effectively states have been attempting to manage the demands of privacy law while simultaneously also growing their surveillance capacities in order to manage um, a pandemic of this scale. Um, and you know, looking you know at cases in Africa, but also in China, what is particularly striking. Is that at one hand, you know, states are attempting to manage, arguably, you know, the largest catastrophe of public health in recent history, while simultaneously also attempting to manage a rather sometimes almost archaic instrument of privacy. By that I mean it's in relation to the technical capacities that technology enables, while simultaneously also attempting to preserve something that is quite profound in the sense of creating kind of space for people to articulate themselves at the level of, of privacy. These are kind of core questions that that many countries had to kind of wrestle with, but how they wrestled with them was obviously distinct and quite local. Uh, you know, for instance, you know, the South African kind of response to it was kind of quick and immediate in the, in the terms of saying that this app, in fact, does not truncate any of the kind of traditional civil liberties because of how the app in itself is designed, juxtaposed to other countries that themselves didn't have to make that case at all. You know, if you're looking at cases in South Korea or looking at cases in China, the immediate response was not that, you know, we have the current um, architecture of the app that is circumventing some of these traditional problems. And so that raises questions, obviously, of kind of public trust, and raises other numerous kinds of questions in terms of, uh, you know, how does trust work in the place of an expanding state?
1: Um, I think a, a sort of second question, a follow-up question to the general issue of the, of the model that emerges from the, the world watching China dealing with the COVID, is is kind of, is the opposite it is the the long history of of fear and uh, basically racist anxiety uh, about. Chinese people, more, in fact, Chinese people than the state. And this ha- has a specific history in South Africa, and not people, you know, many people are not aware of this. There were 70,000 people uh, sent, mine workers, who were sent to work here in 1902. Uh, and, and that was triggered a really, a kind of global uh, yellow peril anxiety, which was very strong in South Africa, uh, strong in Britain as well. And an enormous amount of what is written about the Chinese people and the Chinese state's engagement with the African continent is framed in terms of this what we could call kind of racial conspiracy that there is one policy, um, you know, to bring an authoritarian form of government is the typical line, um, or to give Chinese corporations control over how uh, African countries and African businesses do their work. I wonder if each of you could speak, you know, to that. Question um, to what it looks like in
2: in your own research and your own work. Oh well, actually, I would not refer to my own work in this case but uh, i would refer to other people's work that i i i find uh, fascinating and, and revealing and again uh, it goes against the idea of uh, of uh, of stereotyping china or the fear of the chinese or or the appreciation of the chinese for that matter you know in policy circle in the geopolitical debate we tend to pitch china as uh, the alternative the, the the radical difference the the emerging power and so forth uh, but then we we uh, if we engage with works from uh, anthropologists that have spent long time on the ground uh, observing uh, for an extensive period of time uh, years uh, how this this image actually collapses uh, into the face of uh, the bystanders that are not involved in this development project are not uh, engaged into uh, into the, the myth of development. Uh, and the research that I, I, I refer to all the time is by a former colleague in Oxford, Miriam Dressen, uh, who spent months uh, uh, alongside the roads being built by Chinese companies and engaging with uh, with. Uh, both Ethiopian villages that were seeing these these uh, these roads being built in front of their eyes, and with the uh, Chinese engineers and uh, and workmen, the paradox was, uh, or, or the, the most one of the most interesting findings is like uh, uh, how this development uh, uh, look into the face of the villager is absolutely is the same as the one that had happened four decades before and without without China and the anger of Chinese uh, uh, engineers that uh, at uh, pieces of the construction side being taken away to build uh, their own churches, finishes their houses, uh, and this kind of puzzle is just why are not like uh, signing into our idea of development? Why are you not seeing us as helping and you're stealing from us? And the response is where you know we have other interests, we have other values uh, that resonate more deeply with who we are. You know, religion in some cases, and uh, and um, and so that's that's what we have been doing in uh, for for a long time and we keep doing it now so of course there is an element of race an element of distancing uh, uh, but that's also kind of flattens that 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 misperception definitely at the uh, if you are sitting next to a street uh, about this radical distinction between the east and the west
3: yeah i'd like to say make two kind of comments about kind of um, race and empire more theor- like theoretically in the study of China, Africa, and then also about um, particularly the South Africa um, context. And one, there's there's a political question that's kind of on the edges of most writing on, on China, Africa. And um, there's variations of whether China's presence is good or bad, or is China an empire or are Chinese people racist in in the plainest lay terms. And it's kind of framed in a a positivist way as if these questions have answers. And these questions are ways that I think people, academics, various publics kind of make sense of the PRC's presence um, globally. So these questions are, they're, they're political and theoretical and also methodological, and they raise questions about comparison and definition of which definition of imperialism or racism are we using, and can we use it in a non-white or Euro-American context? Um, is there something distinctively Chinese, quote-unquote Chinese, um, about um, about this kind of emerging 21st, what's being called the Chinese century, that requires a different epistemic apparatus. And I think, you know, we're, we're being forced in this moment to theorize and reconceptualize how we understand terms like empire, race, um, capitalism, racism, racial capitalism, um, more capaciously and retool our kind of concepts and epistemologies and categories um, that de-center whiteness in Euro-America. So that's one broader set of questions. Um, And then in the South African context, what I find interesting I started my my project, you know, looking at how Chinese traders are racialized, um, p- particularly thinking about the kind of infamous nose weak piece. Um, I think it was called "How's It China?" That kind of looks at Chinese traders as kind of an invasion. And as I started working on, you know, thinking about what are the longer durées of this racial racial figure of the Chinese trader. I mean, there's one way you could turn to, okay, this is European, you know, Orientalism, you know, yellow peril kind of the horde um, trope. And then I think it goes back further if you think about, you know, the Chinese question at the turn of the century with, you know, the um, the importation of, of six, 64,000 uh, Chinese um, indentured workers to um, the Transvaal's gold mines and then, uh, and the way that you know Chinese "quote unquote" coolie labor was was racialized, and that also builds on, um, you know, just to to, to complicate things, the, the racialization of the Indian trader and the um, in the Natal. Um, I think there are a lot of um, ways that the uh, that the the figuration of the Indian um, ex-indentured coolie laborer becoming um, a potential settler and a competitor with um, the kind of white artisan class like that kind of um, uh, white settler uh, racial formation also kind of carried over to um, uh, Chinese indentured laborers and and also you know free Chinese migrants at the time who were you know uh, shop, shopkeepers in in the you know, the Cantonese quarter that became the, the Johannesburg's first Chinatown. Um, so I think those those tropes about um, anxieties about Asian capital, Chinese and Indian kind of as kind of foreigners, as potential settlers, settler migrants, um, that has been quite enduring in kind of Um, seeing kind of new Chinese traders and and Chinese capital and Chinese firms, all kinds of what gets kind of lumped together as China. Um, It kind of uh, brings those older racial tropes and logics back up to the fore. So I'm thinking about, you know, this new Chinese question um, of the PRC's very large presence in South Africa, a very large and diverse presence, how that draws on much, much older kind of, Racial histories.
0: So, you know, my work in itself is really preoccupied with kind of tracking the distribution of uh, Chinese surveillance technologies into the global South, uh, and primarily looking into cases in Africa. Like this, obviously, in itself supposes a kind of, you know, coordinated strategy uh, between Huawei um, and the CCP in enabling, you know, the distribution of these technologies. And I kind of take up general journalistic assertion of coordination between the CCP and Huawei as a way to really think through, you know, what is the nexus between kind of speculative venture and, you know, corporate capital and the CCP in itself um, as a way to partly think through how do some of these technologies themselves embed themselves locally and also whether or not do they meet kind of, you know, general governance expectations uh because a lot of these kind of technologies are, are somewhat you know promulgated as instruments in order to curb domestically led problems so like crime for instance as an example and then looking into kind of current databases that somewhat illustrate the fact that some of these technologies in themselves don't domestically support any of the initial intentions while simultaneously also kind of putting to task the general assumption you know that It is, you know, something uh, of a model being exported. A lot of, you know, local um, ambitions uh, are locally driven. So, you know, when the Chinese companies do arrive, they're not coming with their own kind of epistemic assumptions about how to conduct business. In fact, they somewhat, a lot of the time, localize themselves. Again, I'm very much interested in then how do they exactly localize? And how do they exactly work within the kind of milieu in which they're operating in order to meet some of these kind of domestically driven wants while simultaneously also looking at the um, broader consequences for them uh, beyond the expectations that have been initially placed in the technologies?
1: Yeah, I think it's quite a useful thing to take up the, the fintech question. Now, out of all the many things we could talk about as a way of kind of tightening the, the focus and looking at specific problems and how they actually play out in these local contexts we're each interested in. Um, and there's been quite a lot of work on what people are calling the E-Huan, I- 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 or the Chinese digital currency, which is a distributed ledger currency modelled on Bitcoin, but but without the the hugely expensive and, and energy-wasting mining elements. So you have distributed databases that are going to theoretically keep track of all transactions. Um, and there's a Great deal of concern um, in the you know in the Economist, but also a famous, very well cited piece by Samantha Hoffman and her colleagues um, on the the kind of global, the geopolitical implications of a of a currency controlled by the Chinese central bank. And one of the one of the big claims in that piece is that the currency will be seeded globally; it'll be kind of carried and distributed around the world by. This, the, the Chinese diaspora who are deeply already familiarized with the use of the, the online payment systems that are controlled by, or have been controlled by Tencent and Alibaba. Footnote The South Africans are, you know, much more than other people invested in this problem. NASPAS has this ironic, uh, what was a relatively small investment, but which is now a colossal investment an enormously valuable investment in Tencent which is worth 30% of Tencent's market capital. So in rands, truly an astronomical amount of money, trillions and trillions of, of South African capital is now, it's locked into Tencent. And the question of, of how these companies will, will, their relationship with the Chinese, the central state, you know it's gonna be really interesting to watch. Our interest really is in this question of whether or not this is another instance of the old yellow peril arguments um, and what it looks like actually in in practice.
2: You know, every time that there is a piece of innovation, especially in digital tech coming out from China, the answers are always the same and always like, you know, padded between this kind of... uh, Fear that something is going to like spiral out of proportion and it's going to be disruptive and uh, and uh, at the same time a lack of real understanding of let let's go and uh, un- open the, this this black box so uh, maybe I answer in a way that is elusive and doesn't look at fintech it seems there are two opposite tra- trajectories when uh, when technology from the west gets out in the world well this kind of like idea of uh, Hope and opening, and uh, and uh, and obviously the 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 evidence that uh, uh, gets collected around it, like uh, liberation technology in some cases, or uh, that that disrupt the idea, the idea that is not, and the technology that is not disrupting is not just making Uganda more more democratic and so forth. It is resisted until the. that the very phenomena that some of us uh, uh, have been reporting from the ground, the fact that, for example, mobile phones and SMS are not increasing accountability, but actually create a new army of what in some research we call serial callers, people that are paid by political actors to, to pretend to be the citizen on the radio, but actually advancing a, an agenda that uh, that is uh, favoring one versus another. And this is research coming out from 2010, but but that research c- couldn't break the the, the, the the, the, the wall of uh, ICTs or digital technology for good governance, for empowerment, for accountability until it becomes fake news in the US. And then all of a sudden, like, uh, it opens to all the complexity and just, and just you know, makes it its own. Uh, while that complexity was there all the time and was seen in certain places and, and resisted. In the case of China, there is, the interestingly, the, the opposite trajectory. So, there is the, the fear that, uh, that Chinese tech is going to do bad things to be as crude as possible. And, and there is very little willingness to, to go on the ground and actually see what is happening. And uh, unfortunately, there is not much research, but there is some research on Huawei safe city and smart city urban surveillance. uh, And when it's described, usually uh, uh, commentators uh, uh, stop at the signing of the contract. The contract gets signed in Kenya, and Mombasa and Nairobi all of a sudden are going to become this like uh, pilot spaces for for, for surveillance states. Uh, and, and actually, when you look at crime rates, uh, since these projects got uh, uh, deployed to the ground, they went up and down, showing no uh, correlation whatsoever with them. So we, we should treat, again, uh, technology the same way, with the same level of skepticism before putting labels on one or the others, and study the way in which, as, as Bulelani said, often mingles in very unique ways that uh, loses their their you know their their attachment to where they come from, their own sources. So I
1: mean, where your research in some ways is directly apropos to this to this accusation to the end.
3: Yeah. yeah, I would say, um, you know, thinking like uh, working as an ethnographer, I'm more interested in you know how the the stuff of white white papers and kind of, uh, you know, financial journalism, how that manifests on the ground and kind of uh, thinking about different scales and, um, you know, relationships uh, above and below the state and the particular kind of channels that these different kinds of monetary flows move through. And I think how, how people, you know, uh, engage or use or do not use these kind of financial instruments and innovations has a lot to do with how they understand value, how they understand risk, how they understand profit and um, futurity and, and the temporality of of profit and how they understand mobility, both their own kind of human mobilities and also monetary mobilities, just to give two snapshots uh, from Johannesburg. So I'm interested in thinking about um, actually how human and monetary, like migrant and, and monetary um, mobilities are entangled and the different kinds of channels they move through. And I'm I'm trying to kind of disaggregate kind of how we understand Chinese capital and migration in South Africa, and, and tease out the particularities and contingencies of, of these um, kind of ideas. So in Johannesburg, you know, if you go to Santon's financial, you know, center, the financial district, you know, you, you will see um, PRC state banks, you know, there was uh, the the major kind of um, ICBC acquisition of Standard Bank. Um, In the early 2000s, China, you know, the PRC has been South Africa's largest trading partner for for the past decade. Um, And if you go to, say, the international terminal of OR Tambo, you know, you'll see advertisements for these kind of kind of mobile payment platforms, um, things like China Union Pay. When you when you go there during the Chinese, during the lunar new year, from January to March, you'll see a lot of kind of signage welcoming kind of Chinese leisure and business travelers. So there's a certain kind of mobility um, that happens in spaces like OR Tambo and Santin. And then on the ground, I'm working with um, kind of ordinary Chinese migrant traders at you know Johannesburg's china malls and they have quite a different set of mobilities so for my interlocutors they very much understand themselves as chinese nationals as chinese citizens as chinese people but they 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 don't really identify with kind of the PRC's various projects in in South Africa and in, in, on the continent, um, so these ordinary traders are often seen as the face of global China, but they really they don't identify with that project. Um, they very much they they're in South they're in South Africa because they don't quite have opportunities for upward mobility back back home in the PRC. Um, so they kind of come up with kind of alternative remittance systems that are actually very low tech. Um, and just to give another example about about how uh, kind of ordinary migrants kind of do and do not take up these sorts of kind of technological innovations, the rollout is quite uneven. Um, so some of my interlocutors, you know, they left Johannesburg because the, the market in Chinese goods became... Too competitive. So they went to the DRC, they went to Ghana, they went to Mozambique. Many returned home to the PRC. It's quite incredible because I actually, to tell an anecdote, you know, someone who left Johannesburg because it was too hard to do business, they went back home and then in China, they, they found it too difficult to have a brick and mortar shop. So then they ended up coming back to Johannesburg. Um, and there are ways that, you know, people who might use kind of very low tech ways to move money in South Africa back home, they might be, they're using all of the different kind of payment platforms. So these technologies and how people use them can be quite, um, kind of variegated.
1: Well, what's your view on this e-currency thing?
0: One of the the general key trepidation, at least as relates to the United States and specifically kind of American security experts, um, is that digital currencies, you know, further the goal of avoiding kind of dollar transactions and American institutions at a scalable level. That means that effectively these digital currencies themselves can enable the possibility of transactions that are not going through traditional channels. Uh, those traditional channels, in themselves, you know, enable the the power and capacity of American uh, surveillance, uh, which is then a general key feature of American uh, diplomatic capacity. Effectively, greater, you know, uh, financial autonomy for China possibly poses a threat for the United States. Which has always leveraged sanctions as the primary instrument of diplomacy, the United States effectively then has to reevaluate its diplomatic arms. If in fact there's greater financial autonomy uh, for China, but at least you know, in the context of you know American diplomats and uh, American uh, national security experts, it's really a reevaluation of how they're going to be effectively deploying different arms uh, of the diplomatic missions in the world, if in fact digital currencies from China are able to be scalable.
1: I mean, I've got the feeling that this is really a kind of introduction rather than a conclusion. Um, So again, thank you very much for agreeing to do this.